This evening. If you have your Bibles, let's pick up where we are at in 2 Peter, and we're actually concluding the book together this evening, and we're finding our way to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be looking at what uh, is often called the final words of Peter as we come now to verse 14 to verse 18 of, of this little book called 2 Peter. As we've been making our way through the book of 2 Peter, I'm sure we've drawn from that, I trust that you have, many different truths as it regards to God's Word. But certainly there are three words that I want to highlight that kind of encapsulate all of what Peter has been driving at, and those are the words grace, growth, and godliness. That's really the theme. If you could just kind of highlight the theme of 2 Peter and encapsulate it with three words, I would, you could do almost no better than grace, growth, and godliness. And given that that's the theme, you would imagine that that's a worthwhile book to come back to often. But in most commentators that have words on this kind of topic, they'll indicate that Second Peter may be the most neglected book in the entire New Testament. In fact, for that reason, I think many of us, when we came to the book, it was a new book to us, unlike maybe the book of James, when we went through the book of James, and uh, you were very familiar with the themes of James, because you've heard a lot of messages from James, or even for that matter, Philippians, you've probably heard a lot of messages from Philippians, but if you kind of did a tally of how many times you've heard someone even open to Second Peter from the pulpit, it may not be on the top of your list, maybe partly because it's a short book, but also just because it's a neglected book. And there's a reason why I think it's been neglected, and maybe you can help us out. You've already come through it. Why do you think it is that Second Peter is so often just kind of overlooked when it comes to preaching and reading in our, in our churches? Why, why would you think that is? There's really no wrong answer here because I don't know. Uh, what, why do you think that is? Persecution. Well, yeah, persecution is certainly a theme there. That's true. It has a lot to do with false teachers, especially the whole second chapter. And uh, it can shine a light, as, as Rebecca just said, on areas that maybe we don't always feel comfortable with the light shining on. And that's certainly true. And some other reasons, perhaps. It's just kind of overlooked. That's <laughs> true. You might think of Peter as kind of a hothead. And uh, maybe not. You'd rather go to the more eloquent Paul or whatever it may be. Yeah. There's certainly not a wrong answer to that question, but it's certainly true that it is an oft-neglected book. But here, as Peter comes to the final address, the final words, Peter wraps up his letter with some very straightforward and helpful instructions. And as he wraps them up, it's, it's really good for us to consider by looking at the imperatives, or we could call them the commands that Peter gives, because in these imperatives, or we could say in these commands, we find the the heart of his message as Peter wraps up what he is saying. So let's read these verses and see if we can find the imperatives. And there are four imperatives as we read through, beginning in verse 14, that will become the helpful structure for us to follow. But let's read beginning in verse 4. It says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, and here's the first imperative, be diligent or make every effort to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And he says, and count the patience of our Lord. Here's another imperative. And count or bear in mind the patience of our Lord as salvation. This is our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. As he does in all of his letters when he speaks on them in these matters. There are those things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care, or be on your guard, that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your credibility, but grow, there's a fourth one, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. There are four imperatives. 
call them four commands that Peter gives now as he wraps up this book. Before we even look at those verses and those commands, I want you to know that Peter ends it with an amen. Anybody know what's going to happen to Peter next? He's going to die. How is Peter going to die? Historians tell us that Peter was hung upside down on a cross because he didn't want to die the same kind of death as his Savior, and he chose to hang upside down. This is Peter's last will and testament, you could say. This is the last thing he's going to say to those people that he dearly loved. This is the important stuff, then. This is the pay attention stuff. This is the kind of thing when the preacher gets almost done, he says, if you've got anything else, don't miss this, right? This is the important part Peter doesn't want his people to miss. And as he does so, he begins with these four imperatives, and these four imperatives truly will become uh, the outline for us together this evening. And the first such imperative we could call make, make every effort, or as the ESV says, be diligent. Now I want you to notice the logic in Peter's writings. Come back with me to verse 11. Verse 11, and I'll highlight it on the screen here. Verse 11 says, since all these things, oops, wrong that one. Verse 11 says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of godliness, waiting for and hastening to the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So, I want you to notice the logic, as I already mentioned, of what Peter is using. He uses this word, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What is he referring to when he says the things that are thus to be dissolved? The earth. Everything's coming to an end. You could say since, or you could say because of, right? Because of these things, what does he say? Since you ought, or ought you... So because of this, you ought to be what? Lives of holiness and lives of godliness. This is the logic behind it. If everything's coming to an end or because of that, that should motivate you to do that. So Peter elaborates on the coming of Christ and he pushes. And I want you to notice that logic because you come down to verse 14 and Peter's going to use some similar kind of logic. Notice what he says. Therefore, beloved, you could say, so then, dear friends, right? Or, because this is so. Or you could say, in light of the fact that you are looking forward. So then, therefore, beloved. The therefore, of course, is referring back up to what he has just said. What has he just talked about? The earth ending. ending. And what else? The judgment. What else? The Lord returning, right? So therefore, because of all that, because of this end time stuff, we could say, you sense, again, here's, here's the word, sense, you are waiting for these. This is the logic. Therefore, and because of that, what is your motivation? Similar to what he did this way, this time he comes to our imperative. In light of what has just been said in verses 11 through 13, what should you do? Be diligent. Make every effort. I want you to come, and I'll I'll, I'll come to the, the interlinear here so you can see, because Peter uses a really unique word here, and here is the the word that Peter uses, spudaste, and uh, this is a a word that is a favorite Greek word of Peter's. This this particular word might just be his favorite word in all of his epistle. Of course, you can see in this, uh, you could be translated as be diligent, uh, and this is what he says. But if you have your Bibles, and I'll put the, put the Greek up there as well, but you can stay in 2 Peter, but go to 2 Peter chapter 1, because here Peter uses it for the first time in his book. Again, it's a favorite word of his. And it says right here, 
earnestness, or as the ESV says, giving diligence, same word, add to your faith. What's the idea of giving diligence? What does that convey to you? With all your effort. With all your effort, add to your faith. And what do you add to your faith? What are you working on with all of your effort? Virtue and knowledge. That's chapter 1, verse 5. The same word. Stay in chapter 1 and come with me to verse 10. And here he uses it again. Verse 10. Therefore, rather, brothers, be diligent, or be more eager, you could say, to make your calling and election sure. What is he conveying here? Your salvation. Be more eager. Be more excited. Be more diligent. Stay in chapter 1. Come to verse 15. Just kind of going through it. A quick one. Here he is using the word again. He says, I will be diligent now also. I will be diligent at every time to have for you after my departure these things as a lasting remembrance of you. I am also going to be diligent. So what is Peter conveying by this word? This is not a unique word to Peter, though he uses it frequently. One other apostle loves this word and uses it all the time. I'll give you any guesses. Paul. Paul loves this word. Here's an example. There are many others. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Being diligent, there's the word again, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or you could say, make every effort to keep the unity. What is conveyed by this word? What is, what is kind of, if you could illustrate it, how would you convey it to a child in a Sunday school classroom? Say they're a young child, and you're going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to teach them what is being conveyed here in 2 Peter by his repeated use of this word. How would you share that with a child? What's he trying to say? That it's important, that it's important? absolutely. Right. Nancy? Keep working, Keep working, don't stop, absolutely. The straight, this is a straightforward reminder of every believer to exert himself in the development of something. Each one of them lists different aspects of this something, but what am I exerting myself in the development of? What am I working at? Once I'm saved, I'm not working to become saved. What am I, what am I working at? To become more like Christ. To be sanctified. We have both the privilege and the responsibility of exerting ourselves in seeking to deepen and grow in our Christian progress, and particularly in this matter of Christian holiness. After all, look what he says. Be diligent be found, to be found by him without spot or blemish. This becomes an important key theme of what Peter is saying, particularly in this matter. Let's be very clear. This is not particularly a call to ethical activity. And this is not also some kind of call to say, you know, you just need to try your best. It's not what he's saying. We are called to be, energ- to be using the energizing power of the Spirit to work out what God, by his regenerating power, has placed within the core of our being. That's what Peter is saying. In other words, you shouldn't have to garner up this earnestness. That's the theme of this verse. If you have to be zapped to be earnest, you might just need to first get saved. But once you're saved, this earnestness is part of your being. It's a core of who you are. And this journey is active and not passive. Therefore, exertion and effort is involved. There should be a continued movement. What happens when muscles don't move? They atrophy, right? I, use, I think I've told you before, when I, when I was in high school, our youth group was called TFH. That was our youth group, and it stood for Teen Fitness Hour. 
That's what we would have. We would meet on Wednesday night for teen fitness hour. Uh, I think there was 300 or more teenagers that gathered for that. And it was all basically, I, I, I kid you not, like it wasn't anything other than verse by verse expositions of the Word of God. That's what they meant to do. And uh, it was very thorough, and it was very exhausting, and I was encouraged by that as a young man. I, I'm appreciative of Pastor Aaron doing the same thing, because one of the, one of the uh, things that kind of spawned out of TFH was Pastor Aaron sending our teens on missions trips, and they'll be announcing that uh, coming up. I know the parents already know, but our teens will be going on a mission trip this summer, and uh, we're looking forward to that. But you don't just get to sign up to go in TFH, where I grew up, and you won't be for our church either. You had to earn your spot on that mission team, and there were some exhausting requirements to get to go. Pastor Brian was my youth pastor, and he used to say, because I'm not taking any Aikens with me on my teen mission trip. We're here to have a mission trip, not for you to have fun. And so, although you can have fun serving the Lord. And so there were some exhausting requirements. I remember we used to have to memorize entire short books of the Bible. We used to have to do, I think it was four or five different book reports over the months leading up to that. We used to have to memorize tracts and write our own tract. We had to pray with our parents. This was hard for a teenager to do, but I'm glad we did it. We had to pray with our parents over our strengths. We had to list five of our strengths and five of our weaknesses. And then we had to go to our parents and ask if our parents agreed with those strengths and weaknesses. And then we had to pray with our parents five days out of the week over our weaknesses. That's a, that's a good, humbling exercise for a teenager to do. And if you didn't, and then every week we'd gather together on Wednesday night and he would check, or he'd have you staff check, uh, if we did our memory work and our book reports and everything, and if you messed up, you weren't going on the mission trip. Just there was no exceptions. In addition to that, we had to save enough money to have one extra plane ticket, just one extra plane ticket, because if anybody misbehaved on the mission trip, it was known that he would send you home, and he would do that frequently. He'd just send you home, because there was an expectation there. Looking back, I am thankful for that kind of expectation. If, if we think with our children that we can, especially teenagers, that we can just, you know, they'll just trip their way over to being, being diligent, we're fooling ourselves. Yeah. How, how many of you played athletics in high school and the like? Okay. Uh, if, if your coach did not have you running hard before your first game and you go out there, what's going to happen to the team? You get demolished. Are you aware that we are fighting a real battle. The Bible describes it and says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against principalities and powers of this air. Be diligent, Peter says. Fight the good fight. There is a war going on, and if you can be diligent, and you can be one that kind of is energized, it will be, the result of that will be that you will be at peace. That's the result of working I think the best way to illustrate it is, frankly, if you go to bed at night and you worked a hard working day and you go to bed exhausted and you, you sleep well, they're just, those, are not, those are good days. You just sleep well. You're at peace. The Bible does say he gives his beloved sleep. I think what he means is he gives the ones that are willing to work for him. So here's a poignant question. How's the first few days of 2023 doing? in terms of making every single effort? Is there an effort in every aspect of our lives to be diligent? That's the first command that Peter wants to highlight. But he continues and he says, number two, not only be diligent, but he says, number two, bear in mind. Bear in mind. Or as it says in verse 15 of the ESV, and count. ESV says the word count. You can see also, if you want to, the uh, New King James Version uses the idea of consider is, is what they use for that. Um, the NIV is the one that says bear in mind. This is another imperative. Bear in mind, keep in mind. And Peter now exercises a ministry of reminder, which has been a focus of his letter. Come back with me to chapter 1. Come back with me to chapter 1. Not many pages to go back to because it's not a long book. 
But chapter 1, verse 12, I have it highlighted because we've come back to it often. This is really the, 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 the theme of his letter. This is what Peter's been driving at in his letter. You could say this right here is his, is his proposition for his entire letter. He says, therefore, this is why I'm writing, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. That's the purpose of why I'm writing. So Peter's going to end his book, almost bookend his book, with a ministry of reminder. He says, something you already know. Keep this in mind. In other words, don't forget. By the way, you have to already know something to not forget it. I think that's just kind of how the thing kind of works. So this is another ministry of reminder. Don't forget, you could say. Consider, bear in mind all of this. And what is he saying we should keep in mind? What is it specifically he doesn't want you to forget? The patience of the Lord as salvation. Why? do you need to remember the patience of the Lord? And Peter here gives the reason for God's apparent delay. Because the scoffers were saying to the believers, your notion of Jesus coming back is really a silly idea. After all, where is he? Jesus is really coming back. Why hasn't he come back yet? Say, is that really what he's referring to? Again, context being king, that's exactly what he's been talking about. He's been talking about this Lord coming back. And the scoffers are saying, no, it's not happening. He's referring, hey, I want you to bear this in mind. Don't forget about something. Don't forget about, specifically now, don't forget about the patience of our Lord. What is our Lord's patience mean? And the answer is found in the very verse, patience of our Lord as salvation. If Christ has not returned back yet, what is that an indication of? There's, there's still more that can get saved. That's what he wants. That's what God desires. The Lord's patience means salvation for more folks. The patience of God means there is still time, you could say, to be saved. After all, Peter says, I'm not alone in telling you about the patience of God, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Peter's not saying, this is not my own kind of idea or my own whims. Now, this is a really important uh, rabbit to chase here, just for a moment. And it's not really much of a rabbit, because it's right here in a text. But it is something for us to consider. Let's, let's pause for a moment, just using this verse to look at something called the doctrine of Scripture. Because this verse is a great illustration of the doctrine of Scripture. There is an insight here that we, we need to not just slide over when it comes to our Bibles. Here... In 2 Peter 3, verse 15, we see the early evidence of the fact that the Apostle Paul's letters, the ones that we love to read, like Philippians, that we just did before this book, were being collected by the church, and they were also being circulated by the church. This verse indicates that. I, I, can, I can see that there. How can I make that conclusion? He's referencing Paul's letters. And there's an obvious assumption by Peter, you guys know about Paul's letters. In fact, so much so, as he does in his letters, when he speaks on these matters, there are some things, no, I think this is almost humorous. <laughs> we still feel this way sometimes with Paul. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. And I'm sure there were some in the room going, mm-hmm, I get that. Which the ignorant, though, then the unstable twist to their own destruction, which, by the way, is a reference back to what he's been talking about in chapter 2. But here, the letter Peter is writing is a reference back. He's cross-referencing Paul's letters. 
Now you hear preachers do that all the time, don't you? Right? you know, like we're in the Gospels, and you'll say, okay, like for example, two weeks from now, I've been working on this sermon, two weeks from now we're going to be looking at the feeding of the 5,000 men, and obviously we know there was a lot more than 5,000 there. It's the only miracle that's recorded, except for the resurrection of Christ, of course. It's the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. Pretty cool. Now, I'm going to stay in Mark, but I'm certainly going to reference perhaps a little bit, hard not to, others. So you're used to that. When Peter references Paul's letters, and he says that they are written according to the wisdom, and this is really, really important, when Peter says here they are written according to the wisdom given to him, what is he making a case for? The inspiration of Scripture, but specifically the inspiration of what portion of Scripture? The New Testament. The, the Old Testament, friend, you need to understand something. Even when it comes to translation debates, the Old Testament debates, when it comes to canonicity, are pretty well settled even before Christ. And when Christ comes on earth, he's, he's quoting from the Septuagint. It's been around. They know that. This is not, wasn't hard for them to banter about with. It was a settled issue for the Jewish community. What wasn't settled is this new wave of letters that are coming now from the apostles. But the canon of the New Testament is dawned on upon its writers through the wisdom of God. This is the same wording Peter and other apostles will use referencing the inspirations even of the Old Testament. What Peter has just done here at the end of 2 Peter is he has equated, he has placed Paul's letters on the same level as the Old Testament inspired writings. You know what else he's done? He's placed his writings on the same level as Paul's writings. That is, I mean, it's, we can't slide by that. So here's just an application for Bible study. Study the totality of the Bible, all of it. Beware of anybody who cuts the Bible up for you and shows you the key to it in all these new ways by blanketing off passages of Scripture. You ever heard someone say, well, I'm going to read this verse as my launching point today? Right? You ever heard someone almost reference in that way? Just, you know, that's not worth listening to. Study the totality of the Bible. It's in the totality of the 66 books that we have God's completed revelation. Study all of it. It's all valuable. If I were to announce that our next book that we were going to journal through is Leviticus, you shouldn't feel let down by that. It's still God's word. And and for that reason, I, I almost don't like to joke about reading through the Bible and thinking, well, then you get to Leviticus and it kind of all falls apart. Because Leviticus is still God's word. It's not at all that funny to think that it's just kind of a throwaway book, is it? Study the totality of the Bible. Study the unity of the Bible. It possesses a wonderful unity, and it all focuses on Christ, all of it. And study the sufficiency of the Bible. We have all that we need. We don't need anything else. So study the totality and the unity and the sufficiency of of the Bible So as you listen to someone teach the Bible or you read the book about the Bible, listen to what that person says, yes, but also listen to and study that person's approach to the Bible. If they're going to say, well, this portion of the Bible, the Old Testament, maybe isn't all that literal, it's more allegorical, then that person can't truthfully be a student of God's Word because they're not embracing the totality and the unity and the sufficiency of all of the Bible. You can't just take it apart in pieces. Kind of an interesting launching pad. We'll come back to our, our imperatives now. Number three, Peter continues, number three, and he says, not only does he want you to focus on making every effort and bearing in mind, but number three, he says, be on guard. Be on guard. Look what he says in verse 17. You therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, and, and the ESV now here says, take care, that the NASB, if you will, is the one that uses the words, be on your 
guard is how the, the NASB puts it. Be on your guard. This is a word for Peter, isn't it, by the way? Anybody know anything about Peter? I'm sure you do. <laughs> be on your guard. Look, look at that full phrase. Be on your guard that you not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. Anybody know of a kind of an event that Peter might have needed this command in his life? What happened to Peter? He denied Christ three times. So Peter recognizes from his own sad experience that Satan attacks those who are not really paying attention or worse, think they can't fall. Remember what Peter's real failure wasn't that he wasn't paying attention. What was Peter's response when Christ told him, you're going to do this? I can't possibly do that. That will never happen to me. Yeah, yes, right? I'll go to death because of you. And yet, Peter does exactly that. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 is a, is a verse that certainly comes to mind when I'm reading this verse. But the one who thinks he can stand, take heed lest he what? Fall. Don't be naive. Don't be self-confident. Be aware Be aware of what, specifically, that you are not carried away. That you are not carried away, is what Peter is saying. Be aware that you're not carried away. You can almost get the idea, and really the word conveys it that way, of of, uh, a ship losing its moorings, or, or being pulled away from the dock, or off its anchor. And all of the pressure of the ocean around it is going to pull it out. Peter says, you know, you need to take care. Be on alert. It's almost like a a, a fisherman in in the deep sea. Is this anchored down? (laughs) Make sure. Be aware. Because if you're not aware, you're going to get pulled out. And what are you going to be pulled out? With the error of lawless people. What's this a reference to? These are the false teachers, really specifically even this book, we could say these are the false teachers, and you can go back to chapter 2, and you can just read all about, and you can see that these, these false teachers are there, and after all, he refers to them at the end of there, that they are the dogs that return to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to the waller of her mire. That's the lawless people. They have totally rejected Christ, and, and they are pulling you away. And, and can anybody remember that was with us in chapter 2? What is it that draws people to themselves? What is it that makes them so appetizing to folks that they would actually be drawn away by these that have no rules? What is it about them that draws? What is it that they are appealing to pers- specifically? Emotions, absolutely. The what? exception of freedom. Exception of freedom. We could say they are, they're appealing to your senses. That's what they like to appeal to. Whether it be sexual sin or greed or ego, that's what they're appealing to. Or just pride, just bottom line pride, that's what they're doing. And they're lawless because they've rejected God's standard of rule. And when you reject a standard of rule, the obvious uh, outgrowth of rejection of a standard of rule is a losing of your own stability. When you begin to question God's word, the end result is always a lack of stability. And we see that all the way back to the Garden of Eden, don't we? They reject God's word. That was the big temptation of the devil. Did God really say? And by the way, that's still, that is still the devil's big temptation. And when you begin to think, and that's why it's really not too much of a a rabbit, is it, to talk about the inspired word and keeping it stable and secure in front of us. As soon as you begin to hear someone say, well, you know, this story about Noah's Ark is kind of allegorical. As soon as you begin to take away the literal nature of the word of God as it is read and written, as soon as you take that away, what is stopping you from taking away everything else? And the only thing stopping you from doing that is your own whim, quite frankly. At at some point, you will fall into becoming basically a modern-day Thomas Jefferson, 
You know what Thomas Jefferson did with his Bible? You can still buy it today, it's, at least it's online. It's called the Jefferson Bible. Thomas, and Jeff Thomas Jefferson went through the Bible and took out any and all of the miracles. He did not believe in the miracles and cut them out and then pasted the Bible back together and that was his conclusion. What's keeping you from doing that? So you lose your stability. And if you lose the stability of God's word, we get a culture like ours that says, what is truth? Or, or they use a new phrase, just embrace your truth. You ever heard that one? Friend, you don't, you don't own truth. <laughs> God owns truth. But if you embrace your truth, you'll lose your stability. And so he says, along the pilgrimage of life, and as a pastor, it's been said, uh, sad to see bright and shining stars fall out of their system and get pulled away because they arrogantly think, I, I won't ever do that. Be on guard. Don't think that can't happen to you. You are just as susceptible. And finally, number four, Peter says, number four, grow in grace. Grow in grace. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The process of sanctification is active, not passive. That's what Peter is going at. And what does it mean to grow in grace? What is grace? Well, the importance of grace is, is seen in the life of every Christian, Come back with me to chapter 1, verse 2. Come back with me to chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2, Peter is writing, and he's opening up his book, and he says, My grace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Did, did you notice the bookends of this book? It's almost like you could put up Second Peter, and you could literally see, here's, here's how he begins, Grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 2. Come back over here to chapter 3. He's about to finish. Grow in grace and what? The knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it, I, I used to have a, a, a speech teacher that we'd have to do persuasive speeches and stuff. And just like you do even when you're writing a paper, you have your, your thesis or your proposition. And you're going to start out with that, right? I'm going to prove this proposition for a persuasive speech, and you're going to end with that. I'm going to, I'm going to maybe restate it in a different way, but it's the, same, it's the same truth. Did you see? That's exactly what Peter just did. This is, he's, he's again, his point of this letter is to remind you of something, and the big something, if as it were, the, the thing that you should really pull out and see as the diamond, the, the highlight of his persuasive speech, if it was a persuasive speech, is this, grow in grace and peace. This verse and 3.18 are like bookends in Second Peter. Fundamentally, Peter has in mind the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, by grace you are saved through faith. Galatians 2 verse 16 says, we are justified freely, not of works, but by the works of the law, no man would be justified because of our natural man. This reminds me of what has been said, or Spurgeon said was his favorite hymn. This is Charles Spurgeon's favorite hymn. He said, this is, the text says, grace, tis a charming sound, harmonious to the ear. Heaven with the echo shall resound, and all the earth shall hear. There's a sense in which we need to come back to the gospel ourselves every day and be reminded of the amazing grace of God. And not to be content with just a surface level understanding. His last words, Peter is basically saying again what he said at the beginning. Go back to the basics. And remember where we've been in 2 Peter. Let's just kind of review where we've been in 2 Peter. Peter has been talking about the second coming. He's referenced that a lot. 
He's talked about a judgment that will come. He's talked about the day of the Lord. He has brought up illustrations of the flood and the waters and the creation of the world. And he is reminded of these things that Paul has said as well. He's reminded us of those things as well. But he wants us to chiefly understand this. You need to grow in the grace of the gospel. But he also wants us, and I want us to end here, he wants us to focus on what I would just call the gracefulness of grace, if you will. Or if you want to put it a different way, the beauty of grace. The the word grace that Peter uses here is the word charis. You ever heard? That's some daughters and, and, and girls are named charis. It's a pretty name. It just means grace. And particularly in the, in the Old Testament, you could, you could rightly just say the word grace could just be called beauty. And that's what is being conveyed. There's a beauty about grace. And that's what grace is conveyed. It's a beautiful thing. Grace, grow in your understanding, Peter is saying, and your appreciation of the beauty of grace, the wonder of grace, the amazing nature of grace. Because grace and its beauty is the opposite of the ugliness of sin. That's, if you could put on a canvas, if you were really good at art, <laughs> and you were going to put on one side like the most grotesque thing imaginable, that would be sin. And if you could put the most beautiful thing imaginable ever, that would be grace. And sadly, as sinners, our attraction is to the ugly. And Peter desires that we would grow up in our appreciation of the gracefulness of grace, if you will. Now, anytime you do this in an illustration, there's, there's a breakdown. So pardon me as this illustration falls apart. <laughs> but I, my, I used to joke with my wife when we like have um, things on the grill, like steak or whatever. And I'll say, you know, we'll, we'll grill hot dogs for the kids. <laughs> and uh, the adults can have steak. You know what I'm talking about? Because, I don't know, there's I just something about giving my kid a nice piece of steak. I know I should, you know, I, I give him a piece of steak. But you understand, right? There, there's, a, there's a maturity in the taste buds that uh, maybe they, can't, they might appreciate a hot dog more than they would a piece of steak, <laughs> right? Now, I know there's a breakdown here. But Peter is saying the, the, the longer you are saved, the more grace should be more appealing to you like if I had you over to a steakout night and you would choose the steak over the hot dog, right? Uh, most adults would, I think, okay? Steak. Yes, and some of you maybe not, but that's why illustrations break down, okay? <laughs> but the longer you are saved, there should be this growth. There, that you should not tire of this. After all, Romans 5, verse 10, or verse 20, rather, you could write this one down. It says, where, where sin increased, anybody know how this verse finished? Grace abounded more. I wonder if that's how we think about God. Do we think about God that way? Do we think about a God as a one who just is abounding in grace or the graciousness of grace? Or perhaps we think of God more in terms of a tyrant or a big guy in the sky ready to play whack-a-mole with our heads as soon as we poke them up and do something wrong. Peter is saying, and this is what he's highlighting, and, and again, remember, he's, he's highlighting it back up to this idea even of, of patience back up here in earlier verses. I want you to consider, he's saying, the gracefulness of grace. However sinful your heart may be, however prone to wander you may be, there is more grace in the Lord than there is sin in you. That's the patience of our Lord. Romans 7, verse 14. I I believe Romans 7 is Paul writing after his conversion. I really do believe. This is Paul still, he is saved, but he is struggling. And he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this flesh? Elsewhere, Paul would say, the things I don't want to do, those are the things I keep doing. The things I know I shouldn't do, those are the things that I don't do. 
We are in Christ, yes, but we are not yet in heaven. The dominion of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin has not been destroyed. And it's time that we put amazing back in grace. (laughs) That's what Peter is saying. So Peter has called us to bask in grace. The amazing presence of grace. Even, by the way, the amazing future of grace. Come back with me again to chapter 1. Peter, this is the bookend. This is the other bookend. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Look at verse 4. By which... He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Peter is not saying that through the gospel you become divine. That's not what he's saying. Peter is saying that we are going to share in the realm one day that Christ enjoys. And that's exactly what he says when he comes back to the end of his book. Look at the full scope of chapter 3. Look at these heavenly bodies and this change that is coming. And now he comes to grace. One day we will share in the realm that Christ enjoys. Where is Christ? Where is Christ right now? He's with his Father. We are going to share that. Why do we get to share with Christ the Father? Why do we get that? He did, and specifically we could say what? We are now also the sons and daughters of the Father. Does that not amaze you? So I grow every day to have a new and special appreciation of the gracefulness of grace and to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is a reference more than just facts. This is things that are true about our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in understanding of who Jesus is, he's saying. Grow in your understanding of what Jesus did, of how Jesus worked. Just continue to grow in more study. What is it that you're going to study this past week, that you really get into? Grow in your study of the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Friend, as we close, I want you to think about the gracefulness of grace, the beauty of grace. If you are saved, praise the Lord for it. And I want you, as we close, to think about it in terms of of who we are as a a ministry. Suppose I told you that there was a time that you could gather together and there would be majority of believers that gathered with you, just here on earth. But interspersed in that majority of believers would be somewhere around 25 to 30% of those who by their own admission did not either have any church that they went to or had no relationship to God whatsoever. But you would gather with this group and you would study God's word with predominantly believers, but then 25 to 30% of them are either have no church home at all or for that matter may not even be saved. And every week you had an opportunity to gather with that same group. Would that change your perspective on that group in particular when it comes to grace? I think it would. And I bring that up because that's a very real scenario for us. I'm so thankful for Brother Ken Jernigan even going through the numbers for us, and we're going to put this in our 2023 year in review. One of the things that we have been praying for as a ministry is that God would give us a time in the week where it was specifically geared for evangelism. And our prayer specifically was that Wednesday night would become that time, and this is a good time for me to do this in the new year. is about to start up again. This last Awana semester, not the whole year, but just this last semester, somewhere around 25 to 30% of those family units that registered their kids into Awana indicated on their form that they have no church that they go to or that they are not themselves saved. Does that not change your perspective of coming to church on Wednesday night? It did for me when I saw that. Because I was thinking, there are literally people walking by me 
just literally right through those doors. I don't even have to go to them. They came here. And I can have conversations with them about the gospel. Frankly, it changed my motivation to tell you as believers that are with us this evening why you should come to Wednesday night. It's not always for your benefit. I believe you should come to Wednesday night now because God might use that Wednesday for you to win one of those people to himself. That's why you should come. And they're not even that far out. It's pretty compelling. I think that's the beauty of grace. And if we're going to trust in beauty of grace and grow in the knowledge of Christ, I think we have a wonderful opportunity as a ministry that perhaps we're not really taking advantage of. Or folks that are coming down just right through our very building, dropping off their kids, and I'm so thankful for Awana allowing us this opportunity. Don't miss it, though. If you've been moved with the grace that you've heard about from 2 Peter, then I hope it'll move your feet and your mouth to go out and talk to those that'll be coming even next week. And you say, how do I know if someone's saved? Well, here's a pretty simple question. Ask. (laughs) You say, but I don't want to broach the conversation. Listen, if you've been so moved with the grace of God in your own life, maybe you could just start by talking about your own salvation. And then begin the conversation there. I think we maybe lost a little bit of our boldness when it comes to evangelism because we are afraid what people might think of us. But they're already here, and by that they've indicated a desire to get to know a little bit more of what we believe. The door is literally wide open. Let's just jump on through it. Questions, comments as we close the book of 2 Peter. It was a short book. <laughs> Only three chapters long. Man, I hope, I, I don't know, but I, I didn't know it was that good. Yeah, Rebecca, I do have a question. <laughs> her question was what are we starting next I hoped to have a good answer and I was so caught up in this that I didn't have time to think about next week I will have an answer by Sunday I have to because it's going to be put in the bulletin yeah yeah Yeah. Leviticus I just say that I have to say that any other questions or comments all right well thank you for joining us thank you for the kitchen crew for once again pulling off the meal that they prepared. Let's give them a round of applause once again. Great job. Wonderful job. And on your way out, just uh, David Beach has his, his uh, retirement party that he's coming up, and uh, there is a sign-up sheet for those that would like to come to that together with us. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the time we can spend in your word and exploring its contexts. Lord, we're thankful for the book of Second Peter and the challenge it's been to us. And Lord, we've picked it apart, and we've looked at it straight and sideways and upside down and all around. We've, we've just tried to bathe ourselves in this text. And Lord, as we exit the book of Second Peter, may we not exit it forever. May we continue to come back to it in our own personal study. Perhaps some of the notes we've taken during this series will be of help to us. May we remind us often of the message we have heard from this book. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed this evening.